Welcome to the Critical Witness podcast, where we talk faith, apologetics, evangelism, and anything else we can think of. We hope you enjoy the show. evening welcome to critical witness uh it says we're live let us know if you can hear us i'm here with mary joe uh who's written a great book called why i still believe you might be wondering where my co-host is um due to him being on holiday and us miscommunicating he is not with us tonight uh, so i have the privilege of being uh the interviewee and controlling all the tech so hopefully it all works together and uh, we have a, a fun conversation if you're watching this live thanks for joining us and uh, thanks to those already chatting um, feel free to put some questions in there do tag critical witness in there so I can highlight the questions I will try and fit them into the conversation but we're aiming at an hour and uh, there's a lot to talk about so we'll, we'll try and fit them in as the conversation flows but please forgive me if uh, I miss them so without any further ado uh, thank you so much for coming on the show uh, Mary Jo and uh, for taking the time I really enjoyed your book and um, really looking forward to engaging with it a little bit tonight um, would you just start with uh, a little bit of your story um, where it started how you became a Christian um, and then we'll we'll see where this conversation goes. Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, hello. <laughs> I'm Mary Jo Sharp. Um, I, I'm an assistant professor of apologetics here uh, in the United States at Houston Baptist University. So for those people who don't know who I am, that's who I am. Uh, and my, <laughs> I never planned to be that kind of a person. <laughs> my uh, background is that I'm from the I'm Portland, Oregon. So I was raised in the Pacific Northwest. And I was not raised in church. And uh, I was raised by parents who had left the church when I was very young. In fact, very much too little to remember. And uh, my, I, I try to explain my background to people who have troubles um, because in the United States, a name like Mary Jo sounds very Southern Bible Belt. That's what usually people think of me. And I did live in Houston for a long time. I lived in Oklahoma and Texas. So, um, but my background was really steeped in it's sort of a postmodern culture, um, a culture in which religion was very private. Uh, and I say that because, and I know that people in the UK would be like, well, yeah, that's, that's very much kind of what it is here. But in the South where I lived for a long time, um, it wasn't that way. You know, religion was more something people discussed. So it's a very different background. Um, my, what I did have in my life and what I'm actually really grateful for was a father who was just a total, a uh, lover of all things Carl Sagan. <laughs> he loved that atheist popularist and science popularist guy. I mean, he was just, we watched a lot of, uh, my dad like read all his books. We watched a lot of uh, nature and science shows and obviously the shows that Sagan had a hand in. Um, so, and then my dad was a musician. So he loved the arts, he loved music. My mom was a reader and um, she loved all the musical arts. So my background is very much steeped in culture. Um, science, nature, the beauty of the arts. And um, I think that what these things did for me was that uh, with all of this influence in my life, 
Uh, and it's specifically living in such a beautiful part of the world. So I don't know how many of your um, listeners or people who will watch us know the Pacific Northwest of the United States, but it's just gorgeous. It's beautiful. Um, so I think these things had a profound impact in my life, all of these things in that, in different ways, in that I began to wonder what all of this was for. What is all this beauty for? And not just the beauty I'm seeing in the Pacific Northwest, but the beauty I'm creating by, I'm a musician and I, I followed after my father and I play the saxophone. And so playing music and, and creating these great works of art, I was wondering what is, what is the purpose of this? What does it do other than make me feel good in a moment? You know, so I, I was trying to, figure that out in my young teenage mind, which was really difficult. Um, but I believe that these, these things that I saw, the, these things that my dad loved, the, the love of science, he specifically loved anything about the cosmos. Um, he watched a lot of shows about outer space. Uh, I think these things started to impact me in a way of asking that, those questions um, in my teenage form, but it was something where I was trying to formulate, like, what is the meaning of all this? And I realized that I didn't have any answers to that. I didn't know, you know, I believed in things like good and evil. I believed in things like justice and injustice, but I didn't know why. I didn't have any answers for that. Um, I believe things were beautiful, but I didn't know where I was getting that from. And so at about that point where I was having these kinds of questions, I had a music teacher um, who I greatly respected and I actually went on to get an undergraduate degree in music so I could music education so I could teach music. And I wanted to teach like this man. I thought he was brilliant. Uh, he was also a Christian who had never shared his faith before and was really worried to share it with anybody in his job setting like a student. <laughs> yeah, oh, as a teacher, I know what that's like, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people feel that burden. Yeah. So, um, but he was, he said he was just overwhelmingly burdened for me. And so my senior year, my last year of high school, he gave me a Bible as a graduation gift. And he said, you're going to have hard questions. When you go off to college, you're going to have hard questions. I hope you'll turn to this. And he prayed with me and um, apparently I didn't respond. Great. Because <laughs> nobody had ever witnessed to me. Nobody had given me a Bible. I was like, oh, Okay, you know, he actually said my response was uh, skeptical enough that he was worried I might turn him in to the principal. Wow. Oh, goodness. <laughs> keep, keep him sweating. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I'm not a period. I don't like, I'm not a mean person. I, I, I don't think I come across that way. It's antagonistic or anyway. So uh, I think it's funny. I do keep up with him. And I think it's funny. He, he told me he thought that. But <laughs> he, I respected him and I was searching for answers to questions and I you know, why not? Why not check it out? Why not see what this book has to say? So I began to read the Bible. And in reading that Bible, it brought me around to, uh, well, I was shocked, first of all, because I didn't expect it to, especially passages like I'm seeing in Luke, I didn't expect it to read so historical and biographical and just kind of plain reportage. Because uh, Luke really does do a lot of that. Um, in fact, he'll report a miracle and it's just like, yeah, Jesus did this. And then he moves along. Like, and then he went into another town. It's not a big deal. There's no big hero story involved. It's just like, yeah, he did that thing. Yeah. So that really impressed me. And then um, I, I started to wonder, is this true? And I came around to the point of, from reading the Bible my senior year, thinking there's probably a God or there is a God. I was sort of in that position. So when I went off to college, I decided... I need to check this out for myself. And I went looking for churches uh, for the first time I started attending church, which is really funny because 
in the United States, we're all worried about kids going off to college and having their faith stripped away, right? <laughs> yeah, called the reverse. I was the reverse. I was going off to college to finally explore for myself something different. <laughs> yeah, and that's the place for university, isn't it? It's engaging with these different ideas. And um, so you, your experience at university, church-wise, what, what was that like? Were they Were they welcoming? Did they know that you didn't quite believe fully what was that like <laughs> that uh well so the initial experience when i'm in college is uh, me just attending churches as kind of some random college kid so it wasn't real you know nobody was trying to reach out to me or anything i was just trying right. to check these out and stay and stay private <laughs> right. so you're sort of hidden at the back yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> talk to me just i'm just here to yeah. watch I'm just here to see what you guys are saying. And then uh, and then I met my husband my freshman year of college who was a you know born and raised Southern Baptist and from a small town in Oklahoma. And as he and I began to date and got engaged and got married still in college, um, we he ended up going, oh my gosh, I gotta get our family in church. And so we ended up going to um, a church that we had been invited to by his ex-girlfriend. That's fun. And so we went and uh, my, so my first experience with church, and I talk about this in the book, it was not a really good experience. Um, I, uh, now I did come to belief in God before this, this experience I'm about to talk about happened. I actually visited this church and as a visitor, I was doing the incognito kind of thing. And the pastor came and visited me and we talked through the gospel and my need for a savior. And that was where I accepted Christ. Mm. So now my first experience in church as a new believer is where things start to go kind of horribly awry. Um, and that is where, you know, the, my first day I'm, I'm worried about what, this is the first time I'm thinking, what should I wear? I don't know what to wear to church. Cause I'm about to profess that I become this Christian in front of this whole church and I'm nervous and, I, you know, I have no background in this. I'm the, like the new kid in class. I'm afraid I'm going to, nobody's going to like me, (laughs) that sort of stuff. So uh, my husband and I show up at the church and we're on our way into the sanctuary and out in front of the sanctuary is um, the pastor's wife. And she's greeting everybody who's coming in. And how are you? Good morning. All this. And I'm expecting like, Oh, Mary Jo, welcome. I heard you accepted Christ. That's amazing. Congratulations. So I walk up to her and that's my expectation and uh, she's smiling. And then she looks at me, she looks at what I'm wearing, which is one of my two dresses I own as a poor college student. (laughs) And the first words out of her mouth are, Oh honey, we need to get you better clothes. Oh man. (laughs) (laughs) That's brutal. That's not what I was expecting. (laughs) Yeah. There's more important things you'd have thought. Yeah. That must have wrecked your enthusiasm for that service. <laughs> yeah. Remember, this is the service where I'm going to walk down the aisle in front of everybody, because this is what an evangelical Southern Baptist church where you do the, the walk down the aisle and you accept Christ in front of everybody to profess your faith. So right. here I am being told I'm inappropriately dressed and I have to walk in front of the entire church up to the pastor and say, hey, I want Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness. Wow. So it is a little bit alien to me, that kind of, and I know it exists, but it is a bit alien to me, that kind of idea that what you're wearing is far more important 
than your profession of faith. I'm sure there's things that Christians probably shouldn't wear <laughs> to, a, to a Sunday, but if it's their, a new Christian and that's well known. Yeah. Well, and I'm Northwestern. Um, we're not real flashy. We're more of like t-shirts and jeans and Birkenstocks mm. with, you know, wearing our sandals with our socks and stuff like that. That's what I grew up doing with <laughs> the grungy people of the Northwest, you know, the mm. grungers and stuff. So I've never been an immodest person just because no. of my culture, mm -hmm. but I didn't look the way that this church culture thought I should look. Yeah. So, so what did that then do for, for, from that service onwards? Was that just, yeah. How, how did that impact your faith and, and the start of your Christian journey? Well, I think what it did to me, you know, it took, it took a lot of time reflecting on this. So I wasn't just like in the moment going, wow. And then coming up with this, but over yeah. the years, as I've looked back on it, I, I realized that it caused me to start to distrust Christian leaders and greatly so that they were um, not focused on the appropriate things for Christianity. You know, the things that drew me to God, the, the goodness, truth and beauty that I found in the world were not the things that the Christians in the church and, and specifically the leadership. Uh, it wasn't the things that they were focused on. So that caused me a distrust of people who said that they professed belief in God, specifically people who were doing the ministry uh, mm. and, and were involved in leadership. And over time uh, of seeing so many of these things, my husband and I actually started volunteering in the youth program in that church. And we became um, active in ministry pretty quickly because my husband felt like he was called into ministry and began doing the youth ministry. Um, but over years, not just there, but in the other churches, I just saw patterns of these behaviors in Christians where to me, it seemed like they didn't believe what they professed. So they're saying it, but they don't believe it. Uh, and not when I say that, I mean, they didn't believe it to the point of it affecting their daily life or affecting how they treated other people, um, like that they would feel accountable mm. for putting down a new believer, or they would feel accountable for walling up into their vices of pride and, uh, you know, things that were very antithetical to the Christian faith. So for me, that distrust started to um, become, an, it, it led to emotional doubt. I, first, I began to distrust people. And then I said, well, wait a minute. They don't really seem to believe this. Mm -hmm. Why do I believe it? And I didn't have substantial answers for why I believed in God. Um, and so I began to question, well, maybe what did I do back then? Um, do I really need this in my life? Do I want this in my life? Not sure that I do. Hmm. Uh, re really struck a chord uh, with me when I read it, because part of my story when I went to university, so I grew up in a Christian family. And then I found that when I came to the UK, so I grew up overseas, came back to the UK, and I found that that was very much the case for most of my age group, that they'd professed belief but didn't live like it so i'd look at the university crowd drinking everything and then look at my christian friends and it was very similar <laughs> so what, what what is happening here? and in that sense it i don't recall really doubting that christianity was true at that point but i think emotional doubt is something i, I like that term because it definitely meant that my life wasn't impacted by what I thought the faith should do. And it wasn't until actually I met Dan, coincidentally enough, um, that that started changing because he was a new Christian and he was living in a way that 
did have impact his life. So it, it was, yeah, very much uh, apathy is very much a killer of faith uh, when when you see that in in churches. Yeah. So yeah, very much a part of my story that I really was like, oh man, yeah, I can I can see how that would really knock you back. Yeah. So and, and for those who are listening, it's not just don't do this, don't do that, don't drink, mm. don't watch this. It was more for me. It was more of the the state of the heart um, that people cared more about. Um, don't drink alcohol than they cared about be redemptive with others. So if you've hurt somebody, go to them and say I'm sorry. So those were the kinds of I want to be clear that those yep. were the kinds of things that really bothered me is that nobody was seeking actively seeking forgiveness or redemption with others and that they would, like I said, they kind of roll around in their vices and not really care. Uh, and like C.S. Lewis says, pride is like, well, he didn't say it this way, but pride is kind of the, the vice that just unravels you and leads yeah. to all the others. So that that's what I'm, I just wanted to be. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. It's not all about the rules, but it, there is a, a sign that you follow Christ and that yeah. is how you treat others. Um, I've just noticed that Dan's actually in the chat. He's trying to access his Wi-Fi on holiday. So, uh, hey, Dan. <laughs> he said he'd, he'd love to chat to you. There's, um, he's actually, because he shares a similar sort of uh, from atheism to Christianity background, he's uh, being interviewed by, I think, Jonah Harmon, is it? That your same person that's interviewing you from C.S. Lewis Institute, I think. Oh, uh, yes, Jenna Harmon. Uh -huh. Yeah, so we've got Jenna coming on at some point in January, I think. So oh, good. Small, small little connect. Um, yeah, so back to apathy in the church and, and that side of things. So so where did that take you from from there, having been potentially hurt or have ha were hurt by the church and then yeah. the apathy that you saw, Where where did you go from there? Yeah, that's where I started to wonder, you know, what do I want? What, what is it? What do I want this in my life? Do I not? And then I, I thought <laughs> this like one thought kept kind of pricking my conscience, which was just because people don't act like something's true doesn't mean it's not true. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the hypocrisy issue, right? The hypocrisy of believers, which I hear that said so many times. And I'm like, yeah, but the way that people act uh, doesn't make something true or false. I mean, that's for anything. That's not just Christianity. That'd be atheism, anything. Yep. So that bothered me that I, um, you know, that thought bothered me to the point of which I, I said, well, I, you know, I got to answer some of these things. Like, why do I say I believe in God? How do I even know he exists? Do I have anything to offer? And, you know, I say Jesus rose from the dead, but I don't really know if that's true. Uh, so I wouldn't be able to tell you. And so that, that sort of, you know, the emotional doubt led to these intellectual questions, the hypocrisy I was seeing in the church, the hurt that I was experiencing in the church made me kind of go into this mode of, I got to figure out what I believe because I'm not going to stick this out just because it's something that people do, or, you know, because I've gotten into this community and now this is my lifestyle. I'm not one to do that. So I I'm like, I have to know whether or not I actually think this is true. And then I started to try to look, I didn't know what to look for because I didn't know the word apologetics. Um, I had never been seriously exposed to philosophy through my American public school education. So I, I didn't know what to look for, what kind of questions to ask. So I was just anything that said, is God real? Or how do I know Jesus rose from the dead? And I eventually found the case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And that was the first, first book I encountered where he wasn't treating Christianity as true to begin with, and then building on that. He was actually saying, well, how do we know this is true? Mm. So th that book 
he interviewed some in that book, he interviewed some scholars like William Lane Craig and Gary Habermas. And so then I started going anybody I can get my hands on any debates I can listen to. And this was the earlier years of the internet. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. there's a lot of audio files and things. And I, I was just trying to consume them as much as possible. And that uh, I, I subscribed to the Christian Research Journal to try to see what articles I could find. And um, in that journal, I saw an advertisement for a degree program in apologetics. And I started to realize that I could study this mm. and I could study it at a serious level and really dig through the arguments. And that just got me really excited. It was one of those moments where I made a, like a snap decision. I'm going to do this. And I don't do that. <laughs> I overanalyze <laughs> everything. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I actually ended up doing apologetics in a, a search for my own um, the answers to my own doubt. That's, uh, again, uh, yeah, there's a lot of similarities. Actually, I'm not surprised Dan would is uh, got a Timistus because again, his story is linked in with Lee Strobel's book and the sort of gateway to the more intellectual aspects of Christian faith, even if some of the book is still wrestled with by people, but actually it's a real key book for people to engage in when they haven't engaged with that side of the faith before. Yeah. Um, but even with uh, how apologetics impacted your faith personally, that it was wrestling with your own doubt that apologetics helped. And it's something we've explored on the show before is whether apologetics is for the Christian or is it for the atheist ah. or the, the non-believer and possibly probably the answer is both i don't want to set up a di dichotomy really but for me again yeah just digging into the apologetics um and things like that really helped seal things up for me and, and go actually yeah i can i can i don't have to take my brain off out, out of my head <laughs> to access the faith i can uh, really start wrestling with these and, and finding actually that other worldviews have some of these problems as well when you really dig, dig at the, the foundation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So a key part of your uh, involvement with apologetics, it was Biola, wasn't it? That you, yes. you to, yeah. Was that you, you met two heroes of the faith, <laughs> uh, two people that I, I clocked probably fairly early on. And um, as I said to you before we went live, Nabil Qureshi is probably one of my favorite authors uh taken far too soon um and his his defense of the trinity and um no god but one i think it is yeah no god but yeah. one um was a real key uh light bulb moment for me when he when he sort of I was like, oh yeah that, that makes so much sense why haven't i seen that before but how how did you meet them what what's your story with them where did they take you <laughs> and uh yeah. What impact did they have on your, your faith? Oh, it's so much. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I met David and Nabil early on in my own search for answers. It was when I started going to Biola and I met them that first year. They were there oh. for the, um, we have is a hybrid uh, degree. So you have to do two weeks on campus. And so we come in for our two weeks on campus and the rest is online and they were there and uh, yeah, I remember um, these two guys, <laughs> their, their personalities are like as big as their stature. I mean, these are both really big guys, right? Six foot something. Mm. Um, and I remember being very impressed with, you know, their, their personalities, their outgoingness. And um, one of the things that they did for me as I um, talked to them on campus, as I started to find out what they were doing, they were doing debates with atheists. And I was fascinated 
I thought, because I'd never heard any Christians doing that in my whole church experience, that they would actually take these ideas and put them, you know, up against atheists uh, on the spot. And I thought, yeah, that's the way to do it. <laughs> that's the way to do it, right? See if your ideas have merit. And so they, they really attracted me through what they were doing. And what really drew me to them is that they took my ideas seriously. Uh, they saw in me potential for ministry and for um, to do debate and things like that. They they really saw that I had the potential to um, think on these hard issues. And they were the first guys in evangelical Christianity that I had um, see me for what for the gifting that I had, that I was an, um, sort of an intellectual Christian. Mm. Uh, and they really tried to foster that in me. They didn't just do that for me, by the way. They've done it for many people. Yeah. Um, but that was something that I, I grew to respect them very much because they were respecting me for what for my talents. And, uh, and it, it helped me to respect my own ideas, like in my own ministry. And they, they sort of pushed me along. I, I started, I, I started out by saying, Hey guys, can I just review one of your debates? Like, I see what you're doing. I looked you up. It's awesome. Would you be willing? I just wanted to send it to him. Like, so your next debate, can I just send a review of it? And David was like, yeah. And I might just post it online if it's worth any, if it's any good. And, so, and I'm like, oh no, <laughs> that is not what I wanted. And what I kind of from that point, they sort of sucked me into their world of debate. So I was actually helping them put on debates. So if you go back to David and Nabil's early debates in 2007, 2008, 2009, those, those years on YouTube, you'll see me as the moderator and, you know, I'm doing some debate. They actually pushed me <laughs> into debate my first debate uh with a muslim and um, so I found, the, I found that one that is on youtube so if you <laughs> want to look it out is um yeah about yeah. 10 years ago yeah so i've got i've got those debates because of the influence of david and abiel in my life they saw what i could do and they pushed me uh mm. they pushed me out of my comfort zone and what what like i really took away from david and abiel other than so many jokes and beatboxing by david and, <laughs> and <laughs> All this great stuff was that I was, as a Christian, I was fearful of being in the public. Uh, I didn't want to be in the public. I didn't want to share my faith like that. I was happy in my own little part of the world, being nice to people and, you know, not sharing my Christianity in a, in a bold way. And David and Nabil had given up so much like, you know, David, he has a interesting background of atheism and he's a sociopath. And so there's mm -hmm. a lot that goes along with that. And then Nabil watching him um, I met him right after he became a Christian. And so I got to see a lot of the conversations that, uh, of anguish and pain with his mm -hmm. family, having left the Muslim faith. Uh, I saw him on the phone mostly. Yeah. So, um, cause he would always receive calls while we were out doing stuff. And I thought, man, these guys gave up so much. What have I really given up for my faith? Mm -hmm. And it caused me to realize I hadn't really given up much. And, and they were kind of like the ones that, that showed me that they never said it. It was just because of being with them and seeing what they sacrificed to um, see people come to know Jesus and their heart for the lost and their heart for Muslims in particular. It just really impressed me that I needed to push myself out of my comfort zone yeah. and I needed to share what I had with others. So they, they were a huge, huge influence. So what, what would you say coming from that to, to anyone who's sort of a, either in doubting or only just starting to engage with apologetics or even at the point where they might engage with a debate or, or engage mainly with their 
friends. What would you say to someone to who doesn't have a Nabil or David to nurture that? What would be your, how would someone get started? What would you be your recommendation? Oh, well, you can listen to this show, right? <laughs> well, I hope so. That's partly why we're doing it. It's not just, that... uh, <laughs> not just for me and Dan, but yeah, that, hopefully so. Yeah. I mean, you can find a part, you know, part of what I said early on with David and Bill respecting my ideas is that they, they cared about the same kinds of things that I did that I was interested in. And so I would definitely recommend, you know, like this show, if you're a person who is interested in thinking on these hard issues of life and these objections to Christianity in the defense of your faith, why do you believe in it? Finally, there's a lot of podcasts out now. There's a lot of YouTube channels where people are doing the work of the defense of the faith. I would say find, you know, start listening to some and find the ones you resonate with. You're not going to like the style of everybody, uh, but there are going to be Christians who get it like the way that you get it. And uh, so they are, that's where I would start, start watching them and then read the people who they're quoting, um, go in and see some of the lectures by the people that they're coming against. So if, mm -hmm. if their arch nemesis is Richard Dawkins, yep. go read some Dawkins or see yep. what he's saying. And uh, uh, that can start to feed your soul in, uh, in that part that has been lacking, you yeah. know, where you I felt. Think, yeah, this is really drought. important to, to read the people that are, are attacking Christianity christianity their sources as well like just read richard dawkins he's not <laughs> i know a bunch of people that actually became christian because of dawkins so he's actually converted hey. a few people himself <laughs> but, um, but yeah i think i think some people are wary of what they might find when they actually step over the fence and have a look and uh, especially if they've grown up in the faith mm. there's that sort of tentative like well my, what if they do have arguments that convince me and i said well we we need to know we need to know is this true and does it hand up hold up to scrutiny and uh, if you don't engage with that then you'll continue to nurse this doubt until it just eats away um yeah so from all that time with with biola and you you've been pushed to be a bit more public with your faith um where did that take you and part part of me wants to explore the the tension going on that is noted in your book you've got the church where you're really struggling with you've got christians like nabil and david who are really encouraging you but the local church isn't how how do you then move forward in your faith and hold that tension because i'm going to assume here from the because i've read the book as well that you do love the church <laughs> that the, the church is something that you do believe in but how do you manage that tension and going forward uh, <laughs> over that period of time? Yeah, there's there's many different ways of sort of been trying to work this out, and I do want to make it clear that I am still working it out. Mm. So I the actual the book the last two chapters are like they're titled "No Tidy Endings" yeah. <laughs> and "Crash Landing" because I don't feel like here's 10 steps so you can recover from hypocrisy in the church. I don't have that. <laughs> I really appreciated that. I think that actually made your book stand out that this is an ongoing journey for you. I, I really appreciated that. And as I said, before we came alive, there's some really vulnerable bits that I think as a, apologists, evangelists, we can sometimes come across like we've got it so sorted. Uh, and that's, 
you know, Jesus is great. He forgives sins and he's still doing that for me. <laughs> so I, I think there's, there's definitely yeah. an amazing part of that. So how, how yeah. maybe how are you working it out? Where, where, is, where are you at with that? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that goes into this. Um, one of the things you'll hear me say over and over and over <laughs> is the Sermon on the Mount, Luke 6, uh, what Jesus is telling us to do there of loving our enemies and doing good to those who persecute us. Uh, and then if you couple that with, um, you know, the, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. And then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I think this is an interesting coupling because many times your enemy is your neighbor. <laughs> it's like the person that's supposed to be doing right. The person who's supposed to be loving you ends up being the person who's persecuting you or, you know, spiritually abusing or whatever. So um, what I've gotten from Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount that I'm supposed to do good to people um, in spite of what they're doing to me. So do unto others what you want done to you. So that's sort of my position in the church right now is I know these people are going to fail me because um, problem of evil, sin in the world, uh, you know, it's not going to get better till resurrection. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, not fully better. It can be better. Yeah. Uh, I believe in the already and not yet kind of philosophy. Yeah. Like he came, he brought redemption now, but it's not fully going to be restored until the end. And, but in that time, I can do to others the way that I would want people to do things for me, even when they're not. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I often tease my husband. I don't know if this is an accurate metaphor, but I say, well, I Gandalf it. <laughs> <laughs> I know everybody around me is going to fail me and I still am going to try to do what's right, even when it makes me angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's, so my, I love the church. It's like a marriage relationship, right? Um, you know, it's with other people and they're going to fail me and I'm going to fail them. And I admit that in the book is that, you know, part of the problems I have with the church is I was naive going into it. think I'm going to find all these amazing people who are just living like, I don't know, the elves at Rivendell or something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they're human and they have, they're working through their vices. They're working through their problems. Uh, And and we get hurt by that because there's evil in the world, the sin in the world. So I have to acknowledge that, that I am going to get hurt by other people and uh, that, but that doesn't give me the right to hurt them. Mm-hmm. In fact, what Jesus says is that I should do better to them. I should love them um, in a manner that, you know, in a redemptive love and, mm-hmm. and one that doesn't expect anything in return. Yeah. And I think that that sort of, we actually, more people probably have a quid pro quo going on in their mind where they think I did this for you. So you should do this for me, or I treated you this way. Or, so you should treat me this way. Or I love those people that think like me and act like me and, and not the others. Um, and I've seen a lot of that being a minister's wife. Um, I've seen that worked out in different ways in the church where there've been cliques. Yep. Uh, I've been excluded a lot of times from the Southern evangelical church culture and, and groups because I'm Northwest uh, for, former atheist who showed up in the South n- with no makeup and spiky short hair. <laughs> so people just looked at me and were suspicious of me. Wow. Yeah. So it was, you know, I just, that's the tension now is that I try to do what I think is right for me and Jesus, right? So I'm going to treat you good because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. I fail at that. There are times I fail. Don't we all? Yeah. 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 And, but that's the, what I'm trying to do. And there's a lot of prayer that goes into that. There's a lot of trusting God with um, situations I, where I don't trust people. Mm-hmm. and say, I, I don't see how this is going to work out. I, am, I don't enjoy this situation, but I do trust you because of what you did on the cross. 
Um, I know you're trustworthy. So that's a, it's a sort of pastoral answer. There's a philosophical response, which is digging deep into the problem of evil. And the more I dig into the problem of evil, the more I expect everybody to fail me. (laughs) <laughs> quoting, <laughs> quoting myself <laughs> yeah. yeah i'm i'm gonna fail me so you know it's just that that's kind of how i'm i i love the church because jesus died for her. actually i love people mm-hmm. not just the church yep you know it's it's people yeah do, do you love people and if you love people the church is they're part of humanity mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think one of the biggest revelations for, for me is recognizing that the church is both the best thing about the gospel in that you gain a family an eternal family that's global that's into uh, break, breaks all sorts of diversity boundaries but it's also the worst thing <laughs> it's it's the most frustrating and uh often terrible thing that has damaged people when mm-hmm. they've they failed uh or and and part of the the tension as you're you're explaining is is that it's because of us (laughs) that that we are that mess and and if you i find so many people that have been hurt by the church will completely give up on any sense of church because of that hurt and lack of recognition that well we're all human (laughs) and and unfortunately this side of resurrection as you said we it won't be a perfect image of the kingdom. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, is I think is it Paul uses a uh, image of a broken mirror or something, or maybe I'll pick that up from. Oh, else. a mirror dimly lit. Yeah, I think uh-huh. that might be First Corinthians, um, maybe in later on in thirteen. Yeah, Some, somewhere around there. I, mean, I could be wrong, yeah. but I think that, that's the that the mirror right. dimly lit. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, just wait, waiting for when that's really clear and we see the family as it was meant to be. Um, yeah and it's not it's not a small thing is it i mean Mm. we're not trying to be trite here no this is hard but i think a lot of people leave the church having more of a naive expectation of what she is and she is in the world Mm. and she is messy and disgusting and does i mean as christians we have to own up to our past we've tried to justify horrific things and Mm. said that this is because of you know whatever we want to try to justify it from the scriptures and it's not justifiable. Yeah. So, I mean, there are things in our past that are like that. Just, just saying we need to own up to the past. Definitely. Um, but as Christians, I, I used to tell my dad this. I was like, but we actually do have something we're aiming for, which is Christ-likeness, mm-hmm. the standard of goodness that is God himself. So, you know, at least we have something we're accountable to rather than nothing at all or our own feelings or preferences in any given culture or time in history. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think often our our view of what things should look like in the church are generally the sort of here's here's the moral laws that we shouldn't cross. And anyone close to that, well, we'll put an extra level of fencing in. <laughs> so anyone close to that will will tell them off. And instead of it's, it's a sort of flipping the view that I found really helpful as as I sort of help lead a local church here is that instead of looking at people and seeing where they are in terms of offense, it's it's seeing where they are in terms of the cross. Are they headed towards the cross of Jesus or are they moving away from the cross of Jesus? And you can have someone who's the most clean cut Christian looking person who's walking away from the cross. They're yeah. possibly a, a bigger pastoral concern than someone who's messy on your, your stereotypical sinner 
pointing towards the cross. I'm probably, I should be less worried about them because they're heading in the right direction than I am from the person who's judgy and, and all that other stuff. And so I think that's a, something that I found helpful in trying to lead others is trying to figure out, are you headed in the right direction and how can I continue that, that movement towards Jesus that helps me then see, well, actually our, our church should be messy. We should have people. And we've got Jesus saying he's here for the, the sick. <laughs> our church should be full of sick people, <laughs> um, but done in a way where it's safe <laughs> and, and obviously yeah. fitting in that. And it's, it is a, it's a, it's a heavy thing to go through and, and recognize that. But um, yeah, I, I was just sort of thinking of, uh, earlier how you work as an apologist while wrestling with the church how much does do you do you find that means that you you don't really talk too much about the church and when you're evangelizing or talking with people outside of the church how, how does that impact yeah. how you share the gospel <laughs> well I don't I don't really bring the tension that I have with the church into a, like a front conversation with somebody I don't know. Of course, yeah, yeah. But yeah. if they bring it up, like, so if we're talking and they find out that my husband's a pastor at a church or I just say something about it, like, hey, we're do you know, we're at this church down the road. Um, then sometimes people will say to me, oh yeah, I used to go to church. Uh, that's not for me. And then I'll ask them about that. Now, if they bring up the hypocrisy in the church, that's where I can say, yeah, I struggle with that too. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where I can bring that in and say, but for me, I couldn't let the behaviors of the people be the litmus test for the truth of what I believed, because that would, I mean, there's a lot of stuff I couldn't believe then based in just people's behaviors. So, um, you know, that's where I bring it together for the person. And usually they, they actually, every time that I've talked about, they go, Oh yeah, I get that. But the problem is that the experiential side of, of, um, you know, apologetics, the, the, the side that has to deal with the fallout from all of these issues with the church that's just so hard to get past. I talked to a guy for four years who was like, he could argue better for God's existence than I could at the end of it. Yeah. Um, and he wouldn't come to Jesus. Like he's like, no. And so finally he's like, what's keeping you away? And he wouldn't tell me for like, I think it was a year. And then all of a sudden one year I just saw him, a friend pointed out that he had posted my, my road to Damascus. He had posted this note on uh, Facebook where he'd become a Christian and he talked about the emotional pain and the trauma from churches in his background. Mm. And that was keeping, it wasn't the intellectual side. It was this, it was this, and that's no small thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and a lot of times we think uh, if we just give people answers that they'll come to Christ, like that we just need to answer their doubts or even for kids in the church, if we just inoculate them, you know, if we just give them the answers, they won't leave life in, in a fallen world is really hard. And there's no guarantee that people are not going to step away, even if they know rationally it makes sense to believe in God, that it answers a lot of questions yeah. um, or that it, it, it's, it seems more to answer more questions than it you know, poses problems. They, mm-hmm. they still might walk away just because it is so experientially difficult mm-hmm. to um, do what is good and right and true in the face of all this evil and pain and suffering. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't. That just sorry, something clicked when you you were saying that that the your engagement with the problem of evil I found really helpful was the the view that humanity is so there's 
I'm reading too many books at the moment. I've just got it in my mind that it might not be your book. (laughs) But the but the idea that humanity is the problem, the solution must come from outside of humanity. Is that your book or is that that was me? Yeah. Yeah, That was you. (laughs) I'm I'm reading Rebecca McLaughlin's book at the moment. Oh yeah. I just had it in the back of my oh man, I've read I've reading too much. Um so yeah, just I I find that so helpful uh, in in that we have to the, the problem of evil and the problem of suffering is just as big a problem for non-Christians, I th- I think, and and for me personally, I find, and I, I so I, I'm a father of a, a special needs girl, and wrestling with that has has forced me to go into the whole issue of suffering, uh, and yeah. I'm friends with a, a guy who's fairly agnostic atheist who's also wrestling with, with special needs stuff and he's got just as much like wrestling <laughs> to do as to why why is this happening to his kid and and I'll, i'm able to go well actually I, I see the world this way and that's helping me figure out that actually my daughter has purpose has mm. uh, meaning has love has uh, brings joy and suddenly I, I can see where God comes into that. And for him, it's, it's a real opportunity for us to have this conversation, but it, it's something that he's really wrestling with because I want to go, your son has amazing, beautiful purpose, even in this pain. Yeah. And, and he's gradually coming in and we're having some really interesting conversations because of it. But yeah, the, the world is messy and the atheist has to recognize why. And, and oftentimes they don't. <laughs> and I find yeah. that really, I, I find that emotional argument, just as you're talking, is probably one of the bits that I, I don't see enough in apologetics. That yeah. it is very much a rational, let's have another answer, let's have another argument, let's have a debate as well. As soon as you start asking why, which many scientists and things, we can't ask that question why because we don't know. Well, actually, we need to know. That's, that's in, innately inbuilt. That's our psyche. Yeah. And, uh, we want to find out meaning and purpose. And that's so the me, human experience. Yeah. That's, I mean, we can't, I mean, we cut out our heart and then say, why can't you love? You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> that's the yes, human it. experience um, yeah. is that we do want to know the why behind the purpose for things. Do we matter? I mean, if you look at why people, uh, the people who end up, um, not everyone, but lots of people who have depression and uh, the answer for them is like to end it, you know, is, they don't see the value of their life. They don't see the purpose or the why. Uh, it feels meaningless to them. Mm-hmm. And then on, you have atheism telling you, well, I'm sorry, life is meaningless. I mean, that's, you yeah. got to own up to that. Yeah. Uh, and yet our experience is that when we, when we succumb to the meaninglessness of our own life, we despair to the point of not even wanting to live, yeah. right? So there's some problem here with mm-hmm. our thinking that's not being resolved real like easily. Like when I hear atheists say they finally left the Christian faith and now they're liberated. I'm like, from what? Yes. From <laughs> grounding for your faith. So what, so what I think they're, that's kind of, you know, I'm being kind of trite there, but mm-hmm. I, I think it's the liberated from this community. That's so hard to live in. Yeah. Right. It's so Absolutely. hard. to live in, And that is a liberating feeling when you just don't have to answer to anyone. You don't have to, you know, deal with their hypocrisy. You don't have to have all that going on in your life. You can just do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not liberating in the sense of what is it liberating you to? And I do explore that in the book as well. It's like, well, there's yeah. there's not really, what answers are you giving for human meaning, value, and purpose? Um, what answers are you giving for, you believe that things like right now, you believe there's racism. 
how do you ground that? Yeah. You know, where do you get an idea like something is racist and therefore evil, mm-hmm. right? So you got to ground that somewhere. And when I, when I'm liberated from everything, then I have nothing, right? So, yeah, so that's yeah. what, if you can see through everything, then you see nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it, again, that well overused, I wonder if Dawkins uh, regrets writing it with a well overused quote of his, the blind, pitiless indifference of the universe quote that's, I think, in, in most apologetics books as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. How, how do you, I mean, even he doesn't live by that. Uh, he's always pointing out things that are wrong on his Twitter feed. What if it's blind, pitiless indifference well why are you telling me that it's wrong and society says so doesn't work because why <laughs> is our society telling other societies what they're doing is wrong and it, it, as soon yeah. as you zoom out a bit you start seeing actually more and more well which society is right well okay and why, why would we say certain people should have rights and and it gets really messy really quickly and but i'm more and more confident that once you're grounded in the Christian faith. And I think Tom Holland's book, Dominion, does a good good job of showing how the West is founded on Christian ideas and, and morals. And it, it, yeah, you just ask someone, why is it wrong? And and it becomes very subjective very quickly. And you go, I can't live like that. Right. <laughs> that, no, that does not fulfill me. That's one of the things I pointed out in the book is that no matter you know where you're at as you're reading the book, for me, I, I've never been that much of a relativist to where mm-hmm. I'm into nihilism. Like I, you know, nothing matters and I just create and everything, all the values are created by me and they're really delusional anyway. So mm-hmm. might makes right, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. the man with the microphone, the money and the power, that's the values that we adopt. Yeah. I've never believed that even when I was atheist. And, and so um, I couldn't go back to a philosophical view that doesn't un- sub- substantively undergird things like justice and injustice, good and evil, human value and purpose, mm-hmm. you know, or just human value and meaning. Is there meaning to life? Or are we just a bunch of meat machines that live and die and go back to the earth and nothing's of any cons- ultimate consequence? Yeah, absolutely. I've gone off piste here, so I don't actually know where we're, where we're up to in the in the story. So, we're really... you got, I think you got up to where uh, we're, I'm we're an apologist. To, that's it. You're an apologist. Uh, brand new information. <laughs> so I'm just kind of keeping an eye on, on the time as well. There's a, a couple other questions that I, I wanted to um, really na- nail down a little bit because you've debated with with muslims are you still do you still do debates do you still engaging with with muslims that much i don't i i switched gears and helped build an apologetics program um, at houston baptist university and that really took all of my wonder woman powers to do right. <laughs> it would yeah and yeah teaching take does that it sort of consumes <laughs> it does. but so oh, just in that so being in in houston and then and, and fairly southern um do do you find the do you, do you find you're able to draw from the cross-cultural aspects of your debates from when you engage with islam how, how much of your apologetics program is rational thought and argument and how much is it engaging with other cultures that might not be as rational um so f- for example hinduism uh and the sort of relativism that comes from that and how how much is it uh 
yeah, I guess just how much is it Western? How much are we teaching apologists to engage across cultures in that way? Yeah, well, I know that at our university, one of the things we tried to do with our particular program was um, to engage culture. So we actually have a cultural apologetics track where you're um, more in, you do learn the arguments like we do in a philosophical, we have a philosophical track as well. So more analytic philosophy, learning the arguments as they are, uh, but then you're applying them into their cultural homes. So that's where we would, you know, teach a world religions class. And then in that course, you're not just reading about other religions, you're reading about their views of God and then how you engage apologetically on that issue. Right. Uh, so that's kind of how, like, how do you use Hinduism's views um, to, in order to communicate the gospel? How do you use Buddhist views or Islamic views to talk about the gospel with them? So we do that sort of engagement um, and then we also do like we do film, we do writing, literature. What are these guys trying to say? What are they communicating about their culture, their views, um, philosophically as well? So I, I just I love that I love the cultural track because you do get into how to best communicate apologetics within it, um, within the culture, and that's going to vary upon which culture you're trying to reach. Which we don't tell you which one you're trying to. You can reach Western culture. You can try to reach more of um an eastern feel um so it just kind of depends on what you want to do i love it though yeah yeah well it's, <laughs> it's fun working with international students because you end up engaging all sorts of different you just sort of flip from right we're, we're western here oh wait no we're not and then you get someone yeah. who like me grew up in several different countries and then you're like i don't know what you are <laughs> and uh, and that's fun because you start you end up having conversations about where home is that's always a fun one and then yeah. you start having a conversation about where your view is on different things and it, yeah I, I love engaging in that side of things so it's it's uh, really good fun to learn from other cultures and just continue to ask questions of why do you think that where does that come from uh, yeah and and yeah it it has the engagement with cultures has definitely deepened my view of Christianity in the sense that it can cross cultures, redeem cultures and, um, and all that. I've just noticed yeah. a, a question actually, uh, maybe going into our final question. Um, the, the programmer has asked something that's slightly different actually from our final question. Uh, so I'll ask him first, then I'll ask our final question if that's all right. <laughs> sure. um, so he, he's asked who's the best atheist atheist philosopher that you have uh read or engaged with mm. see best is sort of uh too broad <laughs> because Favorite. i like to i like different guys for different reasons um oh, so for for um this issue of values and um morality i really appreciate friedrich nietzsche's uh honesty uh, i think he was very very reflective um about where you would go if you removed an objective standard for God. And I think he tried to communicate that um, almost better than anybody else. And I, I really appreciate him for that. Now, as for like a contemporary, I, I appreciate Michael Ruse's approach to Christianity. He doesn't, he doesn't reduce it to sound bites. He actually tries to engage it more respectfully. And so I think if you're looking for somebody that's not a um, armchair philosopher like Richard Dawkins, um, which who, by the way, he does need to continue to be quoted because he's so influential. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many people are reading Quentin Smith or Michael Ruse, yeah. but I know a ton of people are reading Richard Dawkins. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, he's got to be engaged and we should keep quoting him until <laughs> the atheist community 
starts to deal with that, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, and right. they have, they have. They said you need to, you know, he's a little embarrassing in his philo- philosophical ideals. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would say Michael Ruse. I, I used him for my book. I think he's um, thoughtful in how he's engaging, um, you know, morality and where this comes from and why, why would someone believe in God? And I think that's what I like about him is that he doesn't just go, oh, it's a myth. And it's like all these pagan myths. And those are just stupid people who lived a long time ago. We are so much smarter than everybody else. Today. Sounds like that's- Twitter. Sorry. You've just <laughs> yeah. basically said the whole Twitter stream. <laughs> yeah. The, mo- the modern myth of our time is that we are so much better than everybody who's ever lived because we're more progressed and we're atheist and we don't believe in silly ideas like God. He doesn't do that. He actually... Is more like, well, why would people believe in God? And what does that do? And what does it explain? And what are our responses to that? So he's one that I would be reading if I was reading um, to learn about atheism. That's cool. That's great. Um, so we're coming up to the end of our time and I really want to honor that. Um, but with um, we're always keen to find out what people are reading, who people are reading or listening to. Uh, are you a podcast fan do you, or do you just do books? I love, I love everything. Yeah. <laughs> just absorb. Yeah. That's kind of what I try to do as well. So who should we know about? Who? Let's say, we, I think we've got about just under five minutes. If, who are your top five people we should know about? I have three. <laughs> three is fine. So, if that's what it, it, <laughs> the problem for me is like, once we start down this rabbit trail, I'm like, oh, and this, and oh, There's I'm like an encyclopedia. It. Yeah. But I would say for the cultural moment that we're in, um, maybe an under, um, uh, what do I want to say? Like an underutilized ministry is the Jude Three Project, which is an apologetics ministry by African-Americans. And they are answering, you know, like you you talk about Western philosophy and Western culture, which is a lot based in white Western culture. Mm -hmm. So um, I think one of the things I learned from Jude 3 is that I'm answering questions um, apologetically that some people groups are not asking. And so I think everybody should check out Jude 3 Project. What is the African-American community asking about belief in God? Um, What are their questions and do they do they even reject the existence of God or are they asking different apologetic questions? So these are the kinds of things they handle. And then they handle the apologetically and philosophically and theologically, they're going to handle the current issues that we're all struggling with, with racism and bigotry and those kinds of things and do it in a thoughtful manner from black voices. I love that. Right. Yeah, so that's, that's one. Um, I also would encourage people. Um, so to go to women in apologetics. It's an organization you can find on Facebook, um, on a, just the internet, they have their own website. They do conferences. They um, currently are putting up YouTube videos, but it's uh, women, right? A bunch of women absolutely. who do apologetics. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, it's an organization just full. They put on their own conferences where all women are doing these apologetics uh, issues. And I think that's very encouraging to other women who especially, um, either feel intimidated to say, to speak out these kinds of questions in the church, the local church, because yep. sometimes women told me that they feel like they should already have these answers by their age or whatever, and they don't. So they're embarrassed. Mm-hmm. Other women have told me they don't want to look like an idiot because they don't know how to form the question that they're trying to research. So women in apologetics, it's all women. And I think that actually helps women just feel at ease in asking these kind of questions. So that's it. I would check out women in apologetics. Um, I am a huge John Lennox fan and he has a 
the website called keybibleconcepts.org that I don't think many people know about. And it's all this free work that he and David Gooding did in giving you an aesthetic, like your background in Christianity. So giving you the basics. Um, what do Christians believe? How does this apply to um, our current culture? Things like that. And it's just fabulous. And it's, it's accessible. So key Bible concepts is something I think people need to check out. Amazing. Um, I'm a John Lennox fanboy. I have shaken his hand. And uh, yeah, that's, that's my, my claim to meeting him. <laughs> he spoke, spoke in a town nearby. Actually, he spoke in a school I used to teach in uh in Farnham in Surrey England and uh I, I managed to shake his hand but didn't get time to actually chat to him so may, maybe my dream is to have John Lennox on uh on here at some point maybe when oh we've got my. a few more, uh, subscribers and uh, it's worth his time <laughs> you dream big right yeah I dream I, big I, 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 I did I, I did email NT Wright the other day and he, he was very kind and replied and said not at the moment because he's done too many of these so I'm still dreaming for, for NT right as well. <laughs> hey, that's what you should do. We should do that. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, just, there's so many ministries out there. Um, mm -hmm. Those are the ones that I kind of formulated while we were uh, talking. But yeah. um, I mean, yeah. if you don't know the works of Paul Copan, he's another mm -hmm. good Christian philosopher. Yeah, good, yeah. Um, Michael Lacona has been doing works. Michael Lacona and Risen Jesus um, mm -hmm. Ministries. He's been doing works in a New Testament um criticism and you know he's been doing debating bart ehrman yeah. so i think he's a name you need to know and watch his debates with bart ehrman because Absolutely. i think that they have been influencing each other and i think it, that's fabulous so that's uh, really healthy yeah yeah especially if you're into biblical criticism how can we trust the new testament how can we trust the documents are they reliable is what we have now what they wrote back then i mean that's what these guys are debating and that's very healthy for christians to get into that mm. So those are some <laughs> amazing. No, I really appreciate it. It's really interesting. You picked G3 project. That's just come on my radar recently. Uh, we're having Claire Williams, who is part of ours in, but she set up something similar in the UK called get real uh, or realquestions.co.uk. Um, so we're, we're having her on the show in a, in a couple months time. Um, and then women in apologetics, we've got someone called Nay Dawson, who's part of uh, in, International Fellowship of Evangelical Students and has also set up uh, a Women in Evangelism, Passion for Evangelism uh, group. So, yeah, trying trying to do our bit where we can be. And if you look at our video, our channel at the moment, it's all white blokes. So we're trying to do our bit to to broaden, diversify. <laughs> yeah, diversify. We, we are we have the connects. They will come onto the show. Um, it's early days, but. We're, we're just past an hour and I, I just want to say thank you so much for for taking the time to to chat and um, Dan is in the in the live chat and uh, I think he is actually uh, sorry to, to not be here um, hey Dan <laughs> <laughs> again <laughs> again again so yeah thank thank you for your time uh, happy to to wrap it up there but I could definitely speak. I've got a bunch more questions. <laughs> I know. We'll, I, I know. It's uh, it, we'll there's so much way. to discuss, right? Always. Yeah, always. There's always so much. Cool. Well, I'll just wrap it up here. So for those of you watching online, thank you so much for being a part of this. Hopefully you found it helpful. Um, feel free to uh, put your comments. And if you've got any questions that Dan or I could have a go answering, feel free to put them in the comments below the video. 
We've got a website, criticalwitness.uk. We have started a couple blog posts there. Uh, if you're a Christian and have some good articles that you'd like to be featured, do get in touch. If you're not a Christian, feel free to comment, challenge us, push back, and uh, we might even feature articles of non-Christians at some point as we're just starting out. Obviously, find us on any podcast service uh, as and when we do have the older videos already up. And if you'd like to help with any of the costs of hosting a website and a podcast, we would be uh, very appreciative of that. You can find us on patreon.com, Critical Witness on there. So once again, Mary Jo, thank you so much. And we'll end the stream there. Are you not entertained? Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show if you like what you hear please do give us a subscribe on youtube or follow us on any of the social media out there and give us feedback get in touch let us know what you think if you really enjoyed the content and want to support it find us on patreon.com